Hello everyone, we're back again with our next unit on the Classical Era. So the Classical Era in many ways is unique um, as far as music that's come before it. It's the shortest time period that we're going to talk about in our uh, lecture series, but it is the, one of the most important. It was the first era of music to really outlive its time. Now, what does that mean, to outlive its time? Um, up until this point, music was easily forgotten. Uh, there weren't really archives of music. People didn't study a lot of music. For example, if you were writing music in the Baroque era, um, you might not have access to a lot of the music from earlier eras. Well, this changes in the classical era because uh, we don't have to worry so much about uh, plague, <laughs> disease, and we can really focus more on preserving art. And um, people just become more cognizant of history altogether. In fact, classical refers to Greek and Roman antiquity, which is a, a time period long before uh, where we started the lecture series in the Middle Ages. Uh, that We're talking about over, or just about 2,000 years ago from the classical era. Um, and the ideals of this period uh, shine forth in things like the architecture. If you look at a lot of buildings, uh, for example, like our Capitol building, we can say is in the classical style. Uh, it was built with those pillars, the same kind of pillars that you see um, in Greece and Italy from you know Greek and Roman antiquity. So that's, um, at this point in history, people were looking back way back in the past uh, to revive this sort of art. Uh, the classical period also coincides with the Age of Enlightenment. Now the Age of Enlightenment starts a little bit earlier. It covers most of the 1700s. And this era marks a huge shift in the way that philosophy is conducted. And this connects with music. Um, for the first time, reason and faith were pitted against each other. Uh, if you remember when we talked about the Renaissance, during the Renaissance you had this idea of humanism, which was kind of this believer in that we're marching towards a better tomorrow but it, it doesn't discount the existence of a higher power or um, the value of faith. But during the Age of Enlightenment, these ideals are uh, start to be questioned by more and more people. Uh, Enlightenment thinkers wanted people to free themselves from what they called the dark superstitions of the past, uh, which of course is a way of negatively spinning religious belief. Uh, they wanted people to think critically, and uh, critical thinking, of course, is in the eye of the beholder, but they wanted people to really test their ideas and and not just accept them blindly. Um, they were really against things like drama to make a point. So, for example, uh, in earlier musical time periods, if you wanted to make a musical statement, through a drama, if you wanted to convince somebody of something, you know, you might write a play about it or, you know, um, write an opera about it and perform it. Well, uh, this goes against the way that Enlightenment thinkers wanted to argue. They wanted people to use uh, the, the empirical methods that they devised to determine if something was true or not. So empirical science became the standard for testing everything, and in a lot of ways this has continued to the modern day.
The properties of classical music during this time are almost a mirror image of what they were in... Um, that's not true. They're almost exactly opposite of what they were in the Baroque era. So um, in the Baroque era, if you remember, everything was... There was so much ornamentation, uh, imitative counterpoint weaved, all of these different individual melodic ideas together to form a cohesive whole... It sounds very complex, it sounds very challenging, and it's it's kind of supposed to wow you with the, uh, with the composer's virtuosity and the performer's virtuosity. Uh, in the classical era, they decide to do something different. They decide to look back, again, to uh, Greek and Roman antiquity and really focus on the natural. So... In their minds, classical composers wanted to make it seem like their ideas flowed directly from their brain out through their hand into the pen and onto the paper in the most natural way possible. Now, was that true for all classical composers? Actually, no. Uh, for Mozart, yes. But for the rest of the classical composers, they would write and rewrite and revise, just like all composers do, uh, most composers do. So... But composers really worked hard to make their music sound spontaneous and organic. Classical music on its surface sounds really simple. You have these melodic lines that kind of float above an accompaniment. Um, but in a lot of ways, it's more complex because of the harmonies that are used and kind of the rules of writing music are becoming a little bit more loose. And so more things are possible than were possible in the Baroque era. You can kind of think about the difference between steam power and electricity. When you watch a steam engine, you see the pistons moving up and down, and you see the, you know, the coal being burned, and, and everything is kind of happening at once, and it looks really, really complex. And it is, but if you compare that to um, coming home and flipping on a light switch in your house, you know, what's so hard about that? You flip a switch and the light comes on. But, of course... An electrical system in a house, which is a, you know attached to a power generator somewhere else in a remote location, and the way that power moves across the lines, it is much more complicated than steam power. So steam power is baroque, and electricity is classical. Um, music started to get more and more respect during the classical era as a serious artistic statement. Um, instrumental music up until this point was mostly for background music or for dancing or as to serve as an accompaniment to something going on on the stage, whether it was opera or ballet or whatever. Um, but in this era, people started to appreciate instrumental music just as it is. Um, Enlightenment leaders, these same thinkers that wanted us to think critically, they, they termed music the language of the heart versus, you know, you, you, you'll win somebody's mind by using, you know, theoretical arguments and critical thinking, but you'll win someone's heart by playing music for them. And so the idea that we have of going to the symphony and sitting down and enjoying an hour and a half of music, of instrumental music, uh, that didn't really exist until the classical period where people started to really uh, appreciate just purely instrumental music more. 
The first classical composer we're going to talk about is Joseph Haydn. Now, Joseph Haydn led what we might call a charmed life. For the greatest part of his life, he was uh, under the employ of a man named Prince Esterhazy and the Esterhazy family. Uh, the Esterhazy family came from old money in Austria. They were very, very wealthy. Wealthy on terms that you know you and I cannot even begin to imagine. Um, maybe you know the people at the very highest, uh, <laughs> the one percent of the one percent. But even more so, just because of the time that they lived in, um, they were they were incredibly wealthy, and they had orchestras at all of their different locations. You know, they had different country houses and state houses, and but anyway, um, Haydn was kind of the head of all of the music. Wherever he, wherever the family went, he traveled with them. If uh, the prince wanted to have some morning breakfast music. Then, you know, he'd say, Haydn, tomorrow I want you to write me a piece to play while I'm eating breakfast. And Haydn would do it. Or if the king or the prince was having an important state function, he'd say, Haydn, I need you to compose a symphony and dedicate it to this duke that's coming to town or something like that. So, but the rest of the time, Haydn was kind of left to his own devices. He made a very good salary and he was able to compose uh, additional works that weren't necessarily for the prince, but probably a lot of them were uh, were played for the prince. He wrote more symphonies than almost anyone. Um, he wrote 104, which is kind of a mind-boggling number if you think about symphonies in their modern sense. However, um, symphonies during Haydn's time, which is the early classical period, are much different than symphonies of the late classical period and going into the 19th century. Um, you could fit uh, maybe three or four of Haydn's symphonies, his early symphonies, into one Beethoven symphony. Now, that's still 104 divided by three. That's still quite a few symphonies, but they weren't these uh, complex, lengthy works that the later symphonies became. Um, Speaking of Beethoven, uh, Haydn was his teacher. Haydn spent a lot of time tutoring young musicians and composers, and both Mozart and Beethoven were his students. So the music of Joseph Haydn has um, a couple defining characteristics that are important to know. Um, the first one is that the titles are often programmatic. And just as we've discussed in previous lectures, program music is music that is indicative of a certain subject. You're supposed to be thinking about something else while this music is being played. Um, for example, the clock, it kind of has a tick-tock uh, motif. The surprise symphony starts out very, very quiet. And then I think 16 bars in, there's a very loud chord that wakes everybody up. So... These are the things that um, that Haydn's music often has. If you look at the title, you get an idea of what he's going to be writing about. Now, of course, the listeners in Haydn's day might not have known that the Surprise Symphony was called the Surprise Symphony. They were just there hanging out, and all of a sudden, boom, they got a rude awakening. Um, most of Haydn's music is happy-sounding. 
it kind of sounds like if you want to put on classical music to study with, you want something that's it's not too depressing. Um, Haydn is kind of the prototype of that classical music sound. Now, that's not to say that Haydn didn't write pieces in minor keys. He did, but they are few and far between. Um, he did more to define what early classical music sounded like than almost any other famous composer. So Haydn's String Quartet in C major. Uh, let's talk about what this title means. So you've got all of these different letters and abbreviations and numbers. It's kind of hard to decipher. So let's take a second and do that. So first, you've got the title. This is a string quartet. Okay, so that tells us who's playing. A string quartet is two violins, a viola, and a cello. You have the key that the piece is in, a string quartet in C major. The um, If you think about it this way, major keys sound happy and minor keys sound sad. Um, if you hear a minor symphony, you can walk in expecting it to sound sort of like sad or kind of eerie, something that doesn't sound happy. And then we have the opus number. Now, opus numbers are always uh, created after the composer is, uh, well, I don't want to say always, most of the time, opus uh, numbers are added after the composer has died, and it's basically just a chronological uh, ordering of all of the published pieces by this composer. So this particular string quartet was the 76th surviving piece by Haydn that was published in some way. And then finally, uh, not finally, we've still got a couple more, number. So the number means that this was number three. These were published in a set of uh, a set of a certain amount. I don't know exactly how many. And uh, this is the third one in a set. You can think about this like if you ever have bought a CD box set. It's one title, but there's different discs in it, and that's the that's what the number is. And then finally, the second movement. And movements are different, discrete parts of the same piece. So if you've ever been to an orchestra and you are listening to a symphony, and it sounds like the piece stops, but no one applauds. And if somebody does applaud, somebody's nudging them, telling them not to applaud. It's because it's just the end of the first movement, the end of the first part. So that is what all of these different abbreviations and numbers mean. So string quartets. Haydn did more to popularize the string quartet than anybody else during the classical era. He wrote these things, and they were super, super popular. Um, they were popular not only with his musicians, but they were published, and they were spread around all of Europe. And the reason why they were so popular is because you could play them without needing a whole bunch of musicians. Um, as you can see from the picture, you need two violins, a viola, and a cello, and you can play a string quartet. So chances are, if you are in a community that has musicians, or if you come from a big family and everyone plays an instrument, maybe you can form your own string quartet, and you can put on a concert right in your home. Um, the great thing about string quartets to me is that there are no soloists. So nobody stands out more than the rest. Everybody works together, and it's, it's often compared to a conversation that, that four people are having where no one is really taking charge, but everyone is just kind of passing ideas back and forth. And it's really a pleasant sound, which is why they're so popular with weddings as well. So the string quartet instruments, once again, from highest to lowest, you have your violin, 
your violin two, and these are both the same. It just denotes what part of the music that you play. The viola, and as you can see, a viola is just a tad bit bigger than the violin. And then finally you have the cello, which is much, much larger and is played uh, kind of between your knees. So characteristics of string quartets, there is no conductor. So mu the musicians have to constantly watch each other and kind of play off each other's movements in the music to make sure that they stay together. And again, it's likened to a conversation between friends, a musical conversation. And uh, if you watch the video um, included in the slides, you will see this string quartet, I believe they're playing a song by Radiohead. Another new popular characteristic of classical pieces is theme and variations. So a theme, which is a melody, is presented and then altered in some way. So you might have a very simple melody and then more notes are added to it, but the melody is still recognizable. So alternations could be different rhythms, different textures, they could be, it could be monophonic or polyphonic. Maybe you'd have a different instrument play the theme. All of these are variations, different dynamics. If you wanna play a, a theme one time soft and the next time you play it loud, this is used time and again in classical music. Uh, there is a video here of a um, piano playing variations on Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. That's very good. Now we leave classical music for a time and we move to the Far East, music of Japan. We're going to be talking about an instrument called a kodo next. And a kodo is known uh, as a zither in many other Southeast Asian countries like China. If you ever hear someone talking about a zither, it's the same thing as a kodo. Um, it's a wooden board that's got anywhere between 13 and 25 silk strings stretched over it. Um, each string has its own wooden bridge that's adjusted for tuning. And this will make more sense as we go to the next slide and you'll see it. On your right hand, you hold three picks. Actually, the picks slide onto your fingers and you use those to pluck the strings. And then the left hand presses or pulls strings. So this is different than a guitar. On a guitar, you're always pressing down on a string against the neck to, to fret the note. But on a, a kodo, you can actually pull up on a string and, uh, and bend the pitch a little bit. This instrument is commonly played by geisha, which are female entertainers trained in the arts. They're the, the ladies that sometimes you see in, in Japanese documentaries that have the white painted faces and the very neat looking kimonos. So this is an example of a zither. And as you can see here, we have each individual string has its own bridge. She has some, uh, She's plucking the strings with this hand, and when you see her in motion, she will pull the strings with this hand. It's a really neat instrument, the kodo. So now we have the master musicians of the Akuta Ryu, and we're gonna hear uh, Cherry Blossom on your recordings. Now this is the same, if you watch the video in the previous slide, this is the same recording, it's just arranged in a slightly different way. This is program music. Again, you're supposed to be thinking about the cherry blossoms in Japan and um, why you're listening to this piece. This and many other Asian pieces of music use something called a pentatonic scale. And a pentatonic scale is a five note scale. 
uh, most notes or most Western scales are comprised of eight different notes: do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do, or or seven if you leave out the last do. Um, but a pentatonic scale, an easy way to to do it is to just pick out a black key on the keyboard of a piano keyboard and then just play the next five notes and you've played a pentatonic scale because uh, those are arranged on the keyboard in series of five. Um, and the reason why this is included in our world music section is because Cherry Blossom uses theme and variations form. So in the USA, the zither or the kodo is known as the dulcimer. Now, this is an example of a hammer dulcimer, but there is a lap dulcimer that's played in much the same way the Kodo is. And if you watch this video uh, on the slides, this is uh, a man playing Everybody Wants to Rule the World by Tears for Fears on the hammer dulcimer. Okay, we're getting back to Haydn now. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about his symphony number 102. So... This symphony has a little bit more meaning than a lot of his other symphonies. At this time, in 1795, uh, you might have heard of the French Revolution. At this time, the common people of France sort of rose up simultaneously against the clergy and the rich upper classes and sort of took over and tried to start a new world order where everyone was more equal. And in doing so, they killed a whole bunch of rich people. Uh, some with cause, some without. Um, and a lot of rich aristocrats, if you had money and you had the means to get out of France, you got out of France because it was not a good time to be rich in France. So all of these French aristocrats fled to England. You know, they just went across the channel and um, they kind of got together with their rich buddies in England and they all worried together that something similar might happen in England. Um so Haydn kind of premiered this piece with the idea that we can all get along and that, um, you know, you can combine liberty, equality, and fraternity, which are the three ideals of the French Revolution, without the reign of terror part, without so much use of the old guillotine. So uh, listeners really responded well to this because that meant that they were still going to live. And, um, and that's what this, this symphony is most known for. The, mus the musical components of this symphony, um, it uses the same symphonic form that's typical of the classical era. So it uses four contrasting movements. Each one of these movements is different. Um, the first movement is what's known as sonata form. And we're going to talk more about sonata form in a little bit. Um, it's got a fast tempo. It's usually in a major key. Uh, then you have the second movement, which is a slow tempo. So this is contrasting. We just had this really bright, exuberant first movement, and then we're going to slow things down for the second movement. The third movement mixes things up again. It's a minuet. It's a lively dance in triple meter. Remember, triple meter is one, two, three, one, two, three. And then finally, the finale is light and very, very fast. So it's kind of a happy ending to the, to the symphony. 
And this is typical of a lot of Haydn symphonies. You'll, you'll see the same sort of form here. And one other thing about the finale that's interesting is that it uses something called rondo form, which first comes to the fore in the classical era. And this is um, where you always return back to your original theme, and then you branch out to a new theme. So A, B, A, C, A, D, A, as many letters as you want to go, or as the composer wants to go, but you always come back to the A theme. Okay, and here is a recording of this, um, this particular symphony. All right, let's talk about how classical concerts were different in the, um, than modern, uh, modern, what we call classical concerts. So concerts were much longer in the classical era than they are today. You could go and start a concert at 2 o'clock, and it might not finish until 6. Now you might think, well, that's an incredibly long time to sit still and watch music. And you're right. Classical era people didn't have that kind of attention span either. They were expected to just move about and talk to their neighbors and, and do whatever they wanted to do during a performance. Just as if you were sitting at home and listening to the radio. You know, nobody, if they've got their friends over, will just sit and listen to the radio and be stone silent. Uh, you know, if you want to say something, you say something. Um the mannerisms of the audience were much more akin to uh, audience members at a rock concert today. So uh, remember we talked about how you're not supposed to clap in between movements if you go see a classical concert today? Well, back then, it didn't matter. If you wanted to clap along with the beat, you were free to. If you wanted to go nuts because you loved this certain part, you could. Um, you could hum along. If it sounded like a song that you knew, you could sing some words. I mean, as long as you weren't causing harm to life or property, uh, you know, you could kind of you could kind of just do whatever you wanted to do to enjoy yourself during the concert. Um, the gap between what we call serious music and popular music was not nearly as wide as it is today. What kind of orchestras were playing at these concerts? Um, well, the chamber orchestra was what was the most common form of orchestra at this time. Um, we call it a chamber orchestra today because it's smaller than a normal orchestra. But in the classical era, they just called it an orchestra. It was, that was the normal size. So you have some violins and violas, cellos, just like the string quartet, but with the, the addition of a double bass. And the double bass is the biggest string instrument. It's the one you know because someone has to stand up and play it. It's commonly used in jazz, but mostly, you know, in the classical realm. In the wind section, we have the flute, the oboe, the bassoon, and the trumpet. And we'll talk more about them in detail in just a second. And then finally, we have the percussion section, which includes the timpani, which is a kettle drum. Okay, so here are the strings in the chamber orchestra from high to low. So we start out with the, viol the violin, which is the smallest, and then going up through the viola, the cello, and then finally standing up playing the double bass. The winds in the chamber orchestra um, are the following. We've got the flute, which is the highest pitched wind instrument. Um, it kind of has a silvery, shimmery sound. And then the oboe, if you think way, way back when we had our Middle Ages lecture and we talked about the shawm, 
the the oboe is the modern day version of the sham it has those two cane reeds that are tied together with a piece of wire that that vibrate against each other to make the sound we also have a natural trumpet which is the only brass wind instrument in the chamber orchestra um there are a couple times where you see instances of a sackbut, which is a the predecessor to the trombone, but it wasn't as common in the classical era as it is in the the uh, the nineteenth century, which we're moving on to after this lecture. And then we have what is one of the oddest looking instruments, a bassoon, and this is just like a big stick, um, and but it's got of course holes and keys and everything. And it's got this long metal piece sticking out of it called a bocal. And then at the end, you have a cane reed very similar to the oboe reed. It's just a little bit bigger. And so these are the instruments of the chamber orchestra. Okay, let's move on and talk a little bit about Mozart. Everybody's heard of Mozart, right? He was a child prodigy. He played both violin and piano. And when he was young... His father kind of took him all over Europe. He was sort of like the Michael Jackson of his day. Um, he had a very hard time socially adjusting because he was a star from such a young age, and that continued throughout his life, and he kind of developed several unhealthy habits because of that. Um, he wrote music throughout his whole life, but he never was able to lock down a good, um, you know, a, a good position. Um, good positions, as we've talked about before, are composing for a royal court like Haydn or becoming a choir master at a church. These things offered you kind of a solid foundation, and if you wanted to compose on your free time, you didn't have to worry about the money. Uh, Mozart was never able to do that, probably because of his social uh, difficulties, and so he died in poverty at the age of 35. Uh, no one's exactly sure what happened to Mozart. People often died young for no apparent reason to the people that were taking care of them. Uh, today we could probably have a more accurate diagnosis, but basically what the, uh, the scholars say is that he developed a fever and he died. So that's what we know about the death of Mozart. Now Mozart as a composer is much more interesting. Um, he is widely acknowledged as the most influential composer of classical music and one of the most influential composers of just music period. Uh, he wrote music in every style popular at the time. Why? Because he would take commissions from anybody that would want to pay him. So uh, whatever people wanted written, if you came to Mozart and gave him money, he would do it. Now, the way that Mozart wrote music was much different than the way that other composers wrote. Uh, he would normally uh, write music and never change it. The symphonies were fully formed in his head, and he would just write down what he heard in his head. Most composers will sit down at a piano, work out themes on the piano, write it down, change it, revise it, change it again, but Mozart is just one of those few truly gifted prodigal musicians that... Uh, was able to never change anything. Just whatever was in his head, everything would pop out fully formed. So this is um, one of Mozart's pieces. This is uh, Symphony Number no. 40 in G minor. And we have this K thing. And if you remember back a couple slides ago when we decoded the handle 
uh, symphony. There was no, or it was a string quartet. There was no K there. So what does that K mean? Well, it stands for Koshal, Koshal catalog number. All of Mozart's published works are ranked chronologically. And so uh, it's the same as an opus number, except it's just named after the man who put it in order. He kind of named, and so now we just call it the K number. Um, the first movement of the symphony is composed in sonata form. Remember when I said we were going to go into more detail about sonata form? Well, this is the time. So sonata form allows multiple themes within a single movement. Um, most up until this point, um, your first movement would just have one theme. It was very simple. But this sonata form in the classical era sense, you can explore multiple themes and really you can the, the first movement of a symphony is almost a mini symphony in itself. So the first um, there's three sort of acts. We can say sonata form is a musical drama in three acts. The first act is exposition, and it exposes the listener to the movement's thematic ideas. So it's, it's basically laying everything out on the table and saying, look, this is what we're going to cover in this, in, this, um, in this movement. And these ideas, you can think about them like musical characters. Okay. And then in Act 2, this is where the composer develops those ideas. Maybe he'll put them in variations. He'll take things apart. He'll put them together in different ways. He'll use different instruments, maybe change the key. And then finally, in Act 3, the themes heard in the exposition make a triumphant return, and everything is resolved. So it's that same happy ending again. All of this exists within the framework of that first movement in the sonata. Or I'm sorry, in the symphony, which is called sonata form. Okay, now we move on to our second Mozart piece. That's right, Mozart is so popular that we're going to study two of his pieces, but that's not all. We're going to actually study more. Um, this is a piano concerto, and what makes it special is that it's got double exposition form. And that means that during the exposition, the orchestra plays the theme alone first, and then the soloist plays the theme with orchestral accompaniment. So this just gives the soloist a chance to establish him or herself as the main attraction and play the theme solo. And then the orchestra fills in and they all play it together. This also features a cadenza. A cadenza is a very popular device in classical music that the soloist used to show off his or her abilities. So at the end, um, at the end of a movement, the soloist will just play the highest or the hardest or the fastest series of notes that they can to really show off what they're doing, and it's usually made up on the spot, or it can be, and, um, and the audience just goes wild before you know the final chord uh, that the orchestra comes in on. And here's an example of a cadenza. Okay, now we have The Marriage of Figaro. This is the final Mozart piece, uh, and this is an, uh, a comic opera. Now, this is very important because a lot of people don't understand this. A comic opera doesn't necessarily mean that it's funny. It just contains believable characters instead of mythical or historical ones. So, whenever you hear the words comic opera, don't automatically assume it's going to be something funny. It can be, and The Marriage of Figaro is a comic opera that's funny, but it just means that these aren't operas that center around the lives of the gods 
or the lives of kings and queens. They're normal people. This is a short video of someone explaining <laughs> the plot of The Marriage of Figaro in uh, 90 seconds or trying to. It's really funny. And now we move to the last composer we're going to talk about today in the classical era. This is William Billings. And he is a self-taught composer born in Boston. That's right. He's the first composer that we are going to talk about that was born in the United States. So he published a book called The New England Psalm Singer, which is the first collection of musical works by a native-born American composer. Um, unfortunately, in the United States at this time, there was no copyright law, so people immediately just copied everything in it, published it under what they wanted it to be called, and Billings received no money, or next to no money, and so he died in poverty, which is a real shame. Um, but we got Chester out of this. And as you can see, um, the songs of this time period were often illustrated by, you know, woodcut engravings. And Chester was named for a town in Massachusetts, but it has nothing to do with the song itself. Uh, this was one of the most famous anthems of the American Revolution. Yankee Doodle's the other one. Yankee Doodle has survived. Uh, while Chester has kind of faded away from public consciousness, but it was just as important in its day as Yankee Doodle was. Uh, the text of Chester is devoted to this struggle, the struggle for American independence, and with praise to God on both the first and the last verses. So it's like, thank you, God, for giving us this country, and then in the middle, we're going to fight the British, and we're going to overcome, and then at the end, thanks God again. Um and you can see a link here to a YouTube video of um, from the uh, TV series about John Adams, and he's singing Chester in church with his wife. All right, this concludes our lecture on the classical era. As always, if you have any questions, please send me an email at john.schaller at wvstate.edu. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.